The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, we praise you for your kindness and your grace. I ask, Lord, that this morning you would reveal the kindness that you've shown us in Christ through this incredible story of Ruth. As we see Boaz acting as a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, I pray you would show us the redemption that you've given us freely by grace in Christ. And in that redemption, Father, I pray that you would so radically transform our hearts that we would find ourselves engaged in the redemption of others. Certainly those in this church and those outside of it. We want to know your redemption well and we want to live in accordance with it. So use this passage and use this sermon to rightly stir our hearts with a great humility and a great encouragement humbled by the fact that you had to send Christ to redeem sinners like us and encouraged that you would send Christ to redeem sinners like us. And in that humble encouragement, Father, I pray that you would cause us to be redeemers one to another. Not to just say that we love one another, but to truly act in our lives lovingly towards one another. I fear, Lord, that these types of sermons are often heard but rarely acted upon and we know that grieves your heart and we know it leaves us unchanged so I ask that by your spirit you would not allow that to happen cause us to hear and cause us to do because we want to I do it for our our sake that we might be a church of redeemers. Do it for the community in which we lived. We live here, Lord, where there are many of your elect that have yet to come to a saving grace. And, and we always ask, Lord, that you do it for your glory. You're worthy of it. So be glorified in our redeeming one another. In Christ's name, amen. Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 to 23, we get to end Act 2 today. Um, if you're not there, please open up your Bibles. The title of the sermon is Redeemed to Redeem, Redeemed by Christ, so that you might engage in the redemption of others. Saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that you might bring the kindness and the love and the compassion that God has had for you and Jesus to one another. These sermons are hard because we can't just hear them and feel good. I want you to hear them and in Christ feel very good. But that good feeling ought to translate into good action. And maybe, maybe God will be gracious with us by his spirit and actually put our feet and our hands to work. In August of 2021, after 20 years of being in country, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan completely. Most of you probably saw the images on the news. They were horrific. It was very reminiscent of 1973 in Saigon where people literally were hanging on to the airplane trying to get out 
of the country that had been swallowed up by the Taliban. Uh, we left hundreds of American citizens and thousands of Afghani allies behind who are now currently subject to the brutality of the Taliban regime. Since 2021, dozens of volunteer parachurch, parachurch, <laughs> there you go, paramilitary organizations, with churches supporting actually, have gone back into Afghanistan in order to save Americans and Afghani allies. Hundreds of Americans and thousands of Afghani allies have actually been rescued. They've, they've been found, they've been put on charter flights, they've been brought out of the country, and many have landed here in the United States. Uh, many of these stories are, are heroic and heartwarming, but every single story has this single thing in common. Without concern, U.S. citizens entering the fray and putting their, live, their lives at risk, all those left behind would still be there, stuck behind enemy lines. In other words, they all needed someone to intercede on their behalf. They needed someone to come in and what? And redeem them, to bring them out. Well, in chapter one of the book of Ruth, we found Naomi in crisis. If you remember, the chapter ended, her husband's dead, her two sons are dead. She has an identity crisis because she's no longer a wife, she's no longer a, mo uh, a mother, and after 10 years behind enemy lines, she finds herself back in Bethlehem but she is empty and she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara because I am bitter. In other words, we found her at the end of chapter one in desperate need of redemption. Someone had to go and rescue her. And then we started last week, we saw chapter two opened up with God working behind the scenes. And he brought, if you remember, he brought Ruth and, and Boaz together providentially in Boaz's field. We saw Boaz speak to Ruth and, and tell her, don't go to the other field, stay here. I will protect you, stay here. We saw this act of love and provision, this sacrifice for her. And then if you remember, he said, I know your story, Ruth. I know what you've done. I know how you sacrificed everything. You left home, you left family, you left your gods to come here to take care of Yahweh's daughter, Naomi. And then he prays for God to bless her sacrificial efforts. In other words, he's engaging now in the redemption of both Ruth and Naomi. And we're going to pick up today in verse 14. We're, we're still in Boaz's field. My wife said this morning, are we still? It's the same day. It's the same day. Same day, picking up verse 14. It's lunchtime. And what we'll see here today is Boaz acting on his morning promise. In the morning, he's promised protection and provision for her. Lunchtime comes around. And we're not only going to see his protection, but we're going to see radical provision that not only blesses Ruth, it blesses Naomi. And for the first time in our story, going all the way back to verse 4 and 5 of chapter 1, for the first time, there's a flicker of hope. There's a, uh, there's a chance that Naomi's not going to end her life destitute, identity-stricken, and without food that maybe she can get out of her bitterness. Maybe she can actually be called Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. And as we see God working through Boaz to bless Ruth and Naomi, I want you to ask yourself, what do you need to be redeemed from this morning? And think specifically. 
Who's going to come in and help redeem you from a crisis in your life this morning? How are you stuck? Maybe still behind enemy lines. Maybe you feel like you've been left in Afghanistan. How are you stuck? And who's going to come for you? And maybe even a a more other-centered question is, who are you going to help? Who are you out in the process of redeeming as well? I think one of the greatest struggles that we have as middle-class Western Americans is our not seeing how desperately we need help from one another. We don't see it, we deny it, and as a result, we don't help many others as well. So by God's grace, we'll be able to consider these things in light of what we see God doing through Boaz to bless Naomi and Ruth and, uh, and glorify God in the process. Let's consider those questions as we turn to our next two scenes in the story of Ruth. Scene number one, a kindness that brings relief. A kindness that brings relief. And scene number two, a redeemer that brings hope. A kindness that brings relief and a redeemer that brings hope. Scene number one, a kindness that brings relief. Look at verse 14 with me. The narrator says, and at mealtime, so that, that would be around noon, maybe a little bit earlier. They started work a little bit earlier than many of us do today. After working all morning, now Boaz said to her, said to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. It it was most likely vinegar. It might even have been vinegar and oil like we like to do at our Italian restaurants and dipping it just makes the bread a little more edible. Um, It's doubtful that Ruth had brought lunch. She probably didn't have anything to eat. And and she'd worked all morning, so she's likely very, very hungry. And, And being a Moabite, and being a Moabite female, not part of Boaz's work crew, she was probably standing off at a distance. And so Boaz is there, he gathers his entire crew, and a meal had been prepared for them, and they sit down, and Boaz looks up, and he sees, he sees Ruth, and he says, come here, come to me. He insists that she sit down and enjoy this meal. Look at the latter part of verse 14. So, so she sat beside the reapers. <laughs> How'd you like that? What, what do you do? Oh, I'm a reaper. Yeah. Reaping then, obviously, we hear that term today, we think death, right? But these are the people that are harvesting the crops. She sits, sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she even had some left over. So the narrator is, he's begging us to see something here. Boaz, first, Boaz himself passes the roasted grain. Now, that's a big deal, right? He's, he's the man in charge. He's the landowner. And by him passing it over to Ruth, he's saying two things. One, you're welcome. You're welcome here with us. He's approving her presence in their midst in this blessing of giving her this roasted grain. And two, he, he's saying to the men, watch out, I'm watching over her. Right. So there's significance in this passing But the narrator also wants us to see that that she eats until she is satisfied. Otherwise, she's full, right? She's not only full, but she has leftovers, which we know she's going to take home to Naomi, which I'm sure was part of Boaz's entire plan. I'm going to give you so much food, you're going to eat, you're going to be full, and you're going to have leftovers, which you're going to take home to Naomi. In other words, what we see here. Remember at the very beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, the narrator said that Boaz was a worthy man. 
And he certainly sounded like a worthy man last week. And now his words are being put into action. He is welcoming her. He is approving her. And he is blessing her abundantly with food. So much food she can't even finish the meal. That's a big deal. I know today we eat and we eat and we have leftovers and we throw them away. Food was scarce. Coming out of a famine, I guarantee you, they were watching every morsel that landed on their plate. Look at verse 15. When she rose to glean... Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, verse 16, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So lunch breaks over, right? They're all back in the field, including Ruth. And before Boaz lets the workers go back out, he pulls them aside. She's probably back out in the field. She pulls them aside, and, and he says a couple things to them. He says, I, I want you to allow her to come up and glean among the sheaves. You say, well, what is that? As the reapers would go and they would actually cut down the stalks, they'd be gathering some up together and the women were right behind them and they would take the, they would take the stalks of wheat or in this case barley and they'd bind them together and they would put them in groups or bundles called sheaves. That was the term. And so usually, so remember, Leviticus 23.22 said that foreigners and the poor could come and glean afterwards. So they would usually be behind the women. And so what Boaz is saying is just let Ruth come up right behind you, right amongst all the other women, and let her glean amongst all the stalks that have been cut down by you. In other words, she's going to get a lot more barley by being amongst the women who are bundling the sheaves. But then he instructs them also to cut down some, the ones they cut down, and leave it. Like, like little treasures that she's able to just gather up and, and take home. Um, so when I became a grandfather, I, my children love this. I, I, I take M&Ms and I keep them in my pocket a lot. And then when my little grandchildren come by, they're like little birds, and I go, open your mouth. And they know now, just they go, and I just pop it in their mouth like that, and I, I scoot it in. And sometimes, I'll, if they're at my house, I'll take it and I'll put a little M&M like on a shelf right about eye level for them. So they'll walk by and they'll see it and they'll grab it and they'll, they'll pop in their mouth. Um, I, I'm leaving them M&Ms amongst the sheaves so they can get them freely. <laughs> Both these expressions, my beloved, are expressions of abundant grace and love for a, a foreigner that was not deserved. Boaz did not have to do this. In fact, it's so gracious in their cultural moment that Boaz has to tell the workers, don't get mad at what I'm doing. Look at, look at verse 15. He says to them, do not reproach her. That means do not humiliate her because I, Boaz, have decided to bless her so abundantly. And then, and then he says in verse 16, he reiterates it, do not rebuke her, do not insult her because I'm blessing her like this. In other words, it's so uncharacteristic that he knows the workers and the, even the women are gonna get jealous that here's Ruth gathering and gathering and gathering even more than they. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, so she worked all day, a long day. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So some, somewhere Ruth finds a threshing floor, floor, likely Boaz's, and she takes the barley and she would use a stick and she would, she would whack it. And then the seeds would come out, and you'd collect the seeds, and of course you'd use the seeds, you'd grind it, and you would make all kinds of things with it at that time. 
an ephah of barley, so well, how much was that? There's great debate on how much that was. So I'm going to give you some boundaries. It was between 22 and 36 liters, depending upon who you ask. Now that would be for us today, because we're not, we're not leader people. Well, we do liters of Coke, I guess. Six to nine U.S. gallons. A lot of barley. To show you how much barley it is, yeah, you're, it's a good question. We're talking 30 to 50 pounds of barley. So she probably got some help getting it home. To show you how significant that was, the average worker would receive one to two pounds of barley to sustain their, their, their life for that day to eat, right? So she had, in one day of gleaning, now she's supposed to just be getting the scraps, in one day of gleaning, Ruth was able to take home three to three and a half weeks of barley for both she and Naomi on her first day of work. In other words, she had struck gold. I mean, this was barley gold bringing it home after a single day. In other words, temporally speaking, right? When you're starving to death, food is going to be at the top of your heart and mind. Temporally speaking, things were beginning to look up for Ruth and Naomi. Look at, look at verse 18. And she took it up, Ruth took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw, that she had, saw what she had gleaned. And so she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So um, Naomi sees it and she's like, she's shocked. I mean, there's you know, 30 to 50 pounds of barley. She's shocked that she has so much. She has a meal left over. Naomi eats leftovers and, and they're full. They're at least full in the physical sense. Now, if you, I don't know if you've heard the idiom living hand to mouth before. It's a phrase that goes back to the 1600s and it was to describe someone who was so poverty-stricken that every single day they didn't know where they were going to get their next meal. It was a phrase used commonly in the 1920s and 30s during the Depression in our country. Naomi and Ruth, for weeks now and possibly months, were living hand-to-mouth. They were poverty-stricken, and they did not know where their next meal was going to come from until that morning. And then Ruth comes home, And they've got three and a half weeks in their refrigerator now, stored up, ready to go. And the promise of being able to continue to work until the end of the harvest season. In other words, their primary concern of starving to death was no longer a primary concern because of Boaz's amazing grace upon them. And this is such good news. For the first time in our story, there's a sense of relief There's a sense that Naomi and Ruth can actually breathe a little bit because maybe, just maybe, after Naomi lost her husband and her sons and is now back in Bethlehem, devastated, maybe her life was not going to end like this. Maybe she wasn't going to have to live hand to mouth until the day that she died. Boaz took a very ordinary occasion lunchtime meal with his workers out in the field and he used it to bless extraordinarily Ruth and Naomi. His kindness, his, remember we talked about the Old Testament idea of hased in our, in our first sermon. This extreme compassion, this extreme mercy, this love that is, is with no expectation of anything in return Boaz is showing and this kindness begins to to pour out on Naomi and Ruth and we see transformation. Early, we're still early, but we're seeing it already. 
So the first thing I want you to see is this, in this simple act of kindness, this Boaz has said, loving Ruth, loving Naomi, we now have hope for better days. And we want that because it's been a hard story up until verse 14. Scene number two, a redeemer that brings hope. So a kindness that brings relief and now a redeemer that brings hope. Naomi knew that whatever happened that day in the field was extraordinary. I mean, you don't go out in the field and work all day and come back with three and a half weeks of food. That was unheard of. So she knew something extraordinary. And she wants to know, who, where were you and who blessed you like this? Look at verse 19. And her mother-in-law, speaking of Naomi, said to her, Where'd you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is is Boaz. Now, you you have to remember, the narrator told us who Boaz was back in verse 1. But this is the first time that there's a dialogue between Ruth and Naomi about Boaz. First conversation with his name entering into their their dialogue. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, speaking now of Boaz specifically, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So Naomi, she she prays that God, Yahweh, would would bless Boaz for for his kindness that he's shown to both Ruth and to herself. He says, may the Lord bless him with these Blessings because he's been so compassionate with us. Um, but this prayer also, if you're listening closely, and this is really hard, and there's a debate on the translation on this. This blessing gives us a, a peek into Naomi's heart. There's, there's change taking place. She asks, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord, speaking of Boaz. And then it says in verse 20, whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. Whose kindness, God's kindness, has not forsaken the living and the dead. Of course, through Boaz, but she's praising God here. Now, if you've tracked with us for the past few weeks, not too many verses ago, she was highly critical of the Lord. In fact, if you remember when she came back into Bethlehem and the women were saying, oh, that's Naomi, she said this, chapter 1, verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And then she went on to say, I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That was just a few verses ago. She was very bitter, and you could say maybe even angry that the Lord had been so harsh with her. And yet here, by this simple turn of events of Boaz blessing her, she now begins to praise God Again, did you notice that? Her heart is softening. She says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, verse 20, who's the Lord's, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. So, so God, through Boaz, blessed the living. Who was that? That's Ruth and Naomi. They're still alive. And, and God, through Boaz, is also blessing the dead. That would have been uh, her husband, Elimelech. That had been Malon. That had been Kilion. And that the wives were being cared for. So Naomi gives glory and praise to God for the kindness that's being shown to them. And then in the latter part of verse 20, Naomi also said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And that word drops into our storyline, and that's going to be the theme throughout the rest of the book, this idea of redemption. 
chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4 are really going to hone in on this concept of a, a kinsman redeemer. And you probably know that. Deuteronomy chapter 25 talks about the responsibility of a family member stepping in. Usually it was pertaining to a brother. If the brother died and, and his wife did not have any children, the other brother would step in and marry her so that she could have children and keep the family line going. Kinsman redeemer in the marital sense. They're not there yet. She gets this idea. We'll see this next week. Naomi starts cooking up an idea. It's like, you know what? I have a better idea. This is general redemption. This is, um, in, in the idea of Mosaic law, this is family taking care of family. You see, God, God put into his law, and, and this is amazing that they, the Israelites were required by law to do this. He put in the law what we, what we would call family law, how brothers and sisters in the context of a family, extended family, and even a tribe were to care for one another. They were legally bound by Mosaic law to do certain basic things, and there were three big pieces to this idea of, of a redeemer in accordance with family law. One was if, if for example, um, a family member died and they had property, we're going to see that actually play out in, in chapter 4, then someone from the family was to go make sure that property wasn't lost, that it stayed in the community, it stayed in the clan. Another one was if, if someone was so poverty-stricken they sold themselves into slavery, that a family member was to go and buy them back. If they were taken into slavery or sold into slavery, Leviticus 27 says that a family member was responsible, not optional, to go get them, bring them back into the family. And a third major one from Numbers 35 was that redeemers were to execute justice against a family member who had been harmed either by rape or by murder. They were to go and find the person and exercise justice against them. And, and all these provisions were given by God to the Israelites so that individuals who were destitute, individuals who found themselves either without property or in slavery or, or being treated unjustly, had a means of protection. These family laws given by God to the Israelites were to provide for the individuals in that family and the betterment of that particular community to be well cared for. So if someone found themselves in in a state like Naomi, desperate, poverty-stricken, identity-stricken, there'd be redeemers in her family who would come and intervene and help. And so Boaz's protection and provision provided through Ruth, which pours out on Naomi, is, is this redeemer in action. He didn't stand up and say, I'm going to redeem you. He just starts to love, and he starts to protect, and he starts to provide these acts of kindness as a family member. Now, chapter 2, it ends, it ends with Ruth retelling the day's events to Naomi. And then the narrator gives us, in verse 23, again, this beautiful flicker of hope. Look at verse 23, the end of our passage. The narrator says, So she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and, har- and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So, Poverty-stricken, no longer, no longer destitute. There's going to be food for the remainder of our story. So that's not going to be top of the list. What a difference from the end of of chapter 1, act 1. What a difference. We ended chapter 1, and it was all bad, right? I mean, there was Naomi. She was empty. She was bitter. She was destitute. She had an identity crisis. 
She said, call me, call me Mara because I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi because I'm not pleasant and I'm not lovely. And yet here at the end of chapter two, we see some pleasantness coming back. We see some loveliness coming back to Naomi. She's not the bitter old woman saying, I wish I were dead. There's hope. And this is the beginning. This is the turning of the story of Naomi moving to redemption in Christ. And it's all happening because of Boaz's kindness. These really simple acts of kindness that he's showing to Ruth, which goes to Naomi, which brings about restoration of this family. 1,600 years after Boaz, God, our Heavenly Father, sent a much better Redeemer. 1,600 years after Boaz, God revealed his over-the-top kindness, his divine chesed for his people. And he did that by sending Christ, who we believe to be the ultimate Redeemer, the greater Boaz, the one who had the desire and the resources to redeem sinners like you and me. Out of our emptiness, out of our bitterness, out of our rebellion against God, and back into God's family. He claims us. He brings us back in and treats us in accordance with God's family law. If you remember our study in, in Matthew a few years back, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus would perfectly fulfill the law of God and in so doing, be able to seek forgiveness for us and impute to us his perfect righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of the law. And part of that fulfillment of the law included the family laws. Right? We, we, we believe that Christ fulfilled all the law of the Old Testament, including the family laws. In other words, Jesus came as your redeemer to restore to you your inheritance, your property, your freedom, and your justice that you gave up when you sinned against God. Christ came to bring that back to us. According to Leviticus 25, the redeemer of a family would go out. If someone, someone died or lost their property, the redeemer of the family would go out and get that property back because property was a big deal. Property equaled a home, which equaled food because you had usually a farm attached to it. That was Leviticus 25. Now, I don't know if you remember, but in the very beginning, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, man's inheritance was what? California? The United States? The world. The entire earth. I want you to be rightly blown away by this. In Genesis chapter 1, God created us in his image, man and woman, and then put us to reign over and inherit the entire world earth you were made for big property <laughs> i don't know what your plans are if you're younger for a future you had that vision of you know 50 acres and and cows and chickens that's so small as a christian you should be thinking as a christian globally you say you know what in my inheritance i'd like asia yeah that's more reasonable for a christian you were made by God to reign and have dominion over the entire earth. But you know what happened? We sinned against God. We were cast out of the garden. And someone else took over the earth. Satan did. And we know that he rules over it. 
So Jesus Christ, out of his great love for mankind, Jesus Christ, he came down, he ascended the cross, he paid for our sins to what? To overthrow Satan, to reestablish himself upon the throne over the heavens and the earth, and to reconstitute mankind, our inheritance, to give us our property back. This is what God did through Christ on the cross to make sure that you have an eternal inheritance, namely planet Earth. That's why Jesus was able to say in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit what? They'll inherit the earth, right? Those who are humble, those who see that they're sinners in need of salvation, those who repent and turn to Christ and follow Christ, he says, you know what the end is? We're gonna reign together on the earth, your inheritance, your property, which I've redeemed. Oh, that's, my beloved, that's just, you talk about over-the-top kindness. That's better than a few sheaves. That's better than a few M&Ms on a shelf. God is saying, I'm gonna, I bought back the earth for you. You're welcome. I, I hope that that enables you to take off some of the shackles that you placed upon yourself to inherit the earth by yourself, especially as a Westerner. I, I hope that that truth that Christ through his death and resurrection, has purchased the earth back for you, past tense already, that that helps you to stop trying to build your kingdom on earth now. You know what I mean? I know you know what I mean. I'm talking about that, that rabid Western staking your claim, staking your success on that degree, on that position, on that marriage, that home, and yes, indeed, those 50 or 60 acres. You gotta leave California to do that, and so people leave California to do that. Christ has restored your inheritance. So instead of trying to inherit the earth yourself, I would encourage you to be patient. And instead do what? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all of it's gonna be given unto you. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Follow me, serve me, grow my kingdom, share the gospel, make disciples, become holy as I am holy. And then in the end, I'm gonna give you the earth. Why work so hard for that which you cannot achieve now when it's already been granted to you in Christ? I do not know the answer to that other than maybe we're a bit insane. What a relief that should bring to you. I pray it does. For those of you who are so driven to have what you think you need to have right now, I don't think any of you are working right now to have the entire globe, unless you're a megalomaniac. I don't think you are. I think most of you have these little tiny ideas. God has a much bigger idea for you. There was a second aspect of the redeemers, though. Leviticus 27, redeemers in the family were to go out and to actually buy back those who had become slaves, either taken into slavery, stolen into slavery, or those who became, became so poverty-stricken. Back then, by the way, you didn't just file chapter 11 and try to get out of your debt. If you went into debt, you actually sold yourself into slavery until you worked your debt off. Very common back then. And so a redeemer would go and buy the person out. They'd buy them back out. Leviticus 27, verses 47 to 55. According to the Bible, we were born into sin, Allah, Adam, and Eve, and we have faithfully practiced sin our whole lives. In other words, we know that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We're poverty-stricken. When it comes to righteousness, we do that which we know we ought not do, 
and we don't do the good that we know we ought to do, a la Romans 7. Literally, apart from Christ, you have no power to break away from your slavery to sin. You have no power. You are, apart from Christ, enslaved to your sinful desires. You have no way of experiencing the freedom that God wants you to have in Christ. And we try, we do, we try and it breaks my heart. We're surrounded by those in our lives that do not have Christ, they have no power of the Holy Spirit, and they try to overcome the sin, and they are unable. We try to find peace as a culture, and yet with each passing year, we're more anxious. We spend billions of dollars on therapy and medication to try to find peace, and yet it eludes us. You say, well, why does it elude us? Because Christ is our peace. 40 million, 40 million Americans, that's, that's what? 12, 13% of the U.S. population are on regular anti-anxiety medications. 40 million people are so desperate they go on anti-anxiety medications. This should break your heart. Last year, 20% of all college students, 20% of all college students, now college students, these are the ones who are making it. These are the ones who are being successful. They're in college, right? 20% are on regularly prescribed antidepressants. That's, that's an extraordinary figure. Millions of people that should be okay or not okay. We have heard our politicians demand for the southern border to be closed down because of the amount of fentanyl that's coming into our country and, and in the process killing thousands. Last year, 110,000 people in this country died as a result of fentanyl overdose. 110,000 people. And we, so we talk about closing the border, but no one has the courage to ask, why are 110,000 people taking fentanyl? What is the desire for that? We know that they're broken and they're seeking, my beloved, they're seeking a way out and there's no way out. They're enslaved to their sin and there's no way out. So Christ came down, he ascended the cross, he paid for our sins in full so that anybody who turns to Christ, the slavery ends and the freedom begins. The opportunity for you for the first time in Jesus to know what it's like to be free from sin. And if you know Christ, you know what I'm talking about. You remember those sins that truly bound you and then Christ redeemed you and you were no longer bound. It doesn't mean that you didn't struggle with them, but you no longer bound by them. There was a higher power, a higher strength, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that enabled you to overcome those sins. You no longer were a slave to sin, you became a slave to what? To righteousness. Paul said in Romans 6, 22, that you have been, if you're in Christ, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Jesus came to uphold the family law to get you back your inheritance, to get you back your freedom, and I'm, I'm going to give you one more to get you back your justice. He said, justice. Numbers chapter 35, redeemers of a family were to go out, and if someone had been, a crime had been committed against someone in their clan, or if someone had been murdered in their clan, they would go out and they'd execute justice. We, we would say that's vigilante justice today. It actually was part of the law then, and so it was legitimate justice. 
Genesis chapter 1, again, you were created to live for how long? Forever. Forever and ever. Genesis chapter 1, you were created to live in the presence of God forever and ever. Satan comes in. He tempted Adam and Eve. He said, that tree will not put you to death. It's good. Eat it. They ate. They died physically and spiritually, and so did all mankind. Satan tricked us into sinning against God and put us, what, to death. He is the murderer. He is the murderer of all murderers. That's why in John chapter 8, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about not receiving his words of eternal life, he said this, John 8, 44, to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so Christ says, I've, I've come to ha- ex- exercise justice against the murderer. John 8, John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and the devil himself. And we know, you should know, Revelation chapter 20, one of the most glorious pictures in Scripture at the end of the, uh, the, end of the redemptive story. Fire will come down from heaven and consume who? The devil. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What glorious news that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to destroy the one who murdered mankind. What glorious news. Satan, sin, and death destroyed by your Redeemer, but not without a price. We know that. In order to bring justice to us, Christ had to receive our justice himself. He had to experience the just punishment of our listening to Satan, rebelling against God, and bringing murder upon ourselves. Jesus Christ had to ascend the cross, and he had to be consumed by fire from heaven. He had to take upon himself that lake of fire and sulfur, the day and night forever and ever torment we deserve. He had to do that so he could satisfy God's justice. And in satisfying God's justice, God's justice, when you repent and you believe, justice comes to you. You are rendered just in God's eyes because of the work of Christ. And he did this out of his great love for you. So our Redeemer is not Boaz. It's a greater Boaz. He came to us. We lost our inheritance We lost our freedom, and we lost our justice. And Jesus Christ came by ascending the cross, and he says, I'm going to give it all back to you through, through repentance and faith. Anyone who repents and believes and follows Christ gets their inheritance back, their freedom back, and their justice back. What incredible gifts. What incredible gifts that God bestows upon us through his son, Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you have no eternal inheritance. You know that. You not only will lose everything now, when you die, lose everything here, but you'll lose eternity as well. No God, no heaven, no joy, no fullness, only death, only darkness. Without Christ, you'll remain a slave to sin. Certainly in this life, but even worse, you'll remain a slave to sin for all eternity. The idea of the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth, the smoke that never ceases to rise. Without Christ, there's 
There's no hope of justice for you. There's only justice against you on the day of judgment. But in Christ, everything turns. In Christ, your great Redeemer, you inherit the entire earth. You have perfect freedom. And you have eternal justice. God fighting on your behalf. It's all yours. Not because you earned it. Not because you deserve it. But because Christ earned it for you. As the greater Boaz. As the great Redeemer of mankind. He came to take your empty life and make it full. So good. This should cause us, I believe, to be tremendously humble. Right? You you can't hear the work of Christ and not be humble because it tells you how bad you were, how empty you were. I mean, the only way to, to get you out of the mess that you made was for Christ to come and enter into your mess. So this truth is radically humbling and at the same time it's incredibly encouraging and should give you great confidence right i mean yes you were that messed up and yet what did god the father do he sent christ that's how deeply loved you are that's how much god wants you he sent christ to pay for your sin that he might have you and so this truth should be transformative not only in humbling us but giving us encouragement and confidence and that's When you become humble and confident at the same time through the gospel of Jesus Christ, my beloved, then you can become a redeemer too. You know that. You see, if if you're not humble, then you're arrogant and you can't redeem anybody. And if you're, you're not confident, then you won't approach anybody. But being humbly confident because of the work of Christ, you can engage your clan. You say, well, who's my clan? Well, if you're a member of Christ Community Church, this is your clan. This is your family. And you can actually engage one another to redeem one another. See, I don't believe that you can be touched by the Redeemer's love. You cannot know that Christ has done all this for you. That he came, he bled, he died to give you your inheritance, your freedom, and your justice. You can't know that and experience that and not be changed so that you go and redeem others. In 1 John chapter 4, John said, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. In other words, if you claim to love God as your Father and Christ as your Savior, and you don't actively love one another with the kindness that Boaz had for Ruth, John says you don't love the Father. He has given us this command, anyone who loves God must what? Also love. Love their brother and sister. And again, we started off with how hard that command is. It's easy for us to hear it, and it's easy, it's easy for us to say, I love you. I mean, that, what does that cost you? It doesn't cost you anything. But so much more difficult to actually love with the kindness of Boaz. I'm not talking about a shallow, superficial love, that Sunday, hello, how are you, goodbye, Christianese love, that's, That's no love at all. I'm talking about a redeeming love. Your hands, your feet, your mouth, your ears going to your brothers and sisters and actively engaging in their redemption. This is a love that's concerned about your brothers and sisters' inheritance, freedom, and justice. You, concerned about their inheritance, 
their freedom, and their justice. It's a love that does not stand in condemnation of your brothers and sisters because you know how bad off you were when Christ came to you. It's a love that is, is not indifferent to the struggles of our brothers and sisters. Being concerned, but doing nothing. Right? That's not love. Being concerned, knowing struggles, and not meeting those struggles, that's not love. Christ left heaven to get to you. Friends, this redeeming love, it listens, it looks, it sees when our brothers and sisters are in desperate straits and then takes active, Boaz-like measures to bring relief, to bring hope. It might be It might be you watching out for your sister in Christ who may be entering into a relationship that's dangerous. Boaz said to Ruth, don't go into those other fields. Those are dangerous places. It might be you watching out for a sister in this church saying, that's not a good relationship. That's not healthy. Don't go there. It might might be you helping a brother who has lost his job and is now struggling to get by. You saying, come into my fields, glean from my fields, come into my house, stay in my house until you get back up on your feet again. In our cultural moment, my beloved, it's for most of us, it's going to be you being a friend, a brother or sister friend, where, where you enter into one another's lives and you you listen long and you you pray hard and you bring God's word to bear upon your brother and sister that they might be healed by him. It is our being brothers, our brother's keeper, right? I mean, looking out and saying, I, I don't want you to lose your inheritance. I don't want you to remain enslaved to sin. I, I want you to enjoy the blessings of heaven. It's you watching out for your sister, saying, I don't, I don't want you to lose the justice of God. I don't want you to be judged on judgment day and really being careful with other souls not just coming and going and doing our Western lives. It's us saying, this is our clan, this is our family, and we want, I think it would be a good thing to adhere to the Mosaic family laws and look around saying, well, who's in trouble? Who's going to go save them? Who's going to go help? Simply put, it means you being engaged and involved in the lives of those in this family, minimally this family, and then working for their betterment. Are you at all? Thomas prayed, and it was perfect. Do do we even know the struggles that need to be entered into? It's kind of hard if you don't know that there's a struggle to enter into. Do you know them? Are you around people enough? Are you talking to people enough? Are you engaged in their lives to know, hey, these are real struggles that I can help with, and if I can't, there's a redeemer in the church that can. I'll send them. This is a call for a radical different form of church life in the West. This is not how we do church life in the West. Church life in the West, one hour Sunday, come, go, see you next Sunday. That's not this. These family laws are about families truly loving and caring for one another. We had a sister a few years back that lost her job, lost her place to stay. And a family in this church said, come in. Brought her in. She stayed in their house till she got back on her feet again. It was such a beautiful expression of hased, of kindness in the context of God's family. And they didn't go to Leviticus chapter 27 
you know, or Numbers 25. Oh, here, this is what the law says. I have to. They wanted to because they were concerned about their sister in Christ. So certainly, I think an outworking of our experiencing the love of God in Christ as our Redeemer should be us striving to redeem one another. I'm not talking about redeeming in a salvific sense. Christ does that through his spirit. I'm talking about you working to redeem the lives, the struggles, the hardships through kindness. But there's a second outworking of this, and that would be if if you've tasted the Redeemer's love. It's your eyes getting beyond this community and looking out at the greater community and seeing those on the outside, all that God has elected before the foundations of the world to redeem that are not in yet. Those that are, they're still held captive by their sins. They're still in slavery. They're still in Afghanistan behind enemy lines. You see, Ruth was a Moabite and God brought her in first through her marriage to Malon and then now through Naomi brought her into the family of God because she had been ordained before the foundations of the world to join the family of God. And it would be through Boaz's kindness that he accomplished his purpose. So I want to ask you this and then I'll close in prayer. How many of God's elect are in your mission field that are stuck? How many? Family, friends, co-workers are awaiting, they're awaiting your arrival. They're awaiting for you to come in on that cargo ship and land so they can get out. A kind word, a simple offer to help, a ride to the docker, a week of groceries, maybe a home-cooked meal, maybe again for most of us in our fast-paced culture, just stopping long enough to listen and to know and to engage, just stopping so that those on the outside know that those on the inside actually, they actually care. Many in your mission field are, are like those who have been left behind in Afghanistan. They want out and have no idea how to get out. They're truly stuck. You were stuck like that too. But God sent a redeemer to you to bring you the gospel so you could see the real redeemer, Jesus Christ, and be saved. You're that lifeline that God has made to bring the gospel so that those on the outside can see how to get inside, can see how to get home. I would argue, my beloved, I think that those men and women who went over to Afghanistan and risked their lives to bring out the Americans and the Afghan allies, I would say that was a noble work, and I praise God for them. But I would argue that an even greater nobility are those in Christ who take the gospel to the lost that they might come out of eternal slavery and eternal damnation. What an amazing opportunity we have in Christ to redeem the lost. We praise God. We praise God for not forsaking the living and the dead or we'd be forsaken. We praise God for that. But sending Christ, man's redeemer to us, that's the ultimate kindness that's the ultimate has said. It's being shown to you. To redeem our inheritance, to redeem our freedom, and to redeem our justice. Not so that we can just sit and be happy, but so that we can go and redeem others too.
I'm going to pray right now. I'd ask you to join me that God would make us the clan of Christ Community Church, the family of Christ Community Church, a church filled with redeemers, redeeming one another and redeeming the lost. Pray with me to that end right now. Father, this story should be both encouraging and convicting. Encouraging in that we know that you sent the greater Boaz, your own son, to to buy us back entirely, to restore our inheritance, to restore our freedom, and to restore our justice. And and we praise you for that, Father. And yet I believe that if we have a, a discerning ear, we would be maybe a little bit, maybe a lot convicted right now. I doubt most of us, especially in this culture, can identify well with Boaz. We identify well with Ruth. We know we're destitute, but not so much Boaz. I pray you would change that, Father. Make us the redeemers you've equipped us to be in your spirit. Let our eyes and ears be sensitive to the needs of others, and that our hands and feet be active in bringing relief and hope to those who are destitute. Every single one of us needs help, Lord. I ask that you'd overcome the Western lie that we don't. And I pray you would simultaneously cause us to see how much we can help others in Christ. Do that for your glory. Do that for us, Lord. Do that for the lost in our mission field. Make a church full of Boazes, Lord. For your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.